Good morning again. Last week I, I started uh, the sermon series with a, a quote uh, that I'll remind you of today. It's a quote that I think is important for each and every one of us as we realize as Christians we live behind enemy lines. We live in a culture that does not glorify our Father. We live in a culture that does not pull us towards his wisdom, towards his love, and towards his glory. And this quote says, it doesn't matter if the whole country decides that something wrong is something right. When the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth until the whole world know you move. And the reason I shared that quote with you was as we came into the month of June, I just felt bombarded by the messages, whether it was online, in person, uh, on the, in the news, wherever you went, that were telling you that this is a month that we need to celebrate pride. That we need to celebrate pride in the homosexual community. We need to celebrate pride in the LGBTQI community. And that this is something that isn't a sin. This is something that isn't wrong. This isn't something to be ashamed of. And in fact, if you aren't willing to celebrate it, you're actually you're actually the one who has sin in your heart. You're actually the one who has hate. And so, last week, that's what we talked about. We talked about this topic of hate. Because the narrative that you and I hear from the world is that if we don't promote those individuals who live in the LGBT community, if we don't cheer them on, if we don't talk about how brave and bold and courageous they are, then we're hateful people hateful bigots. And so we talked last week about what does the Bible say about hate? And does that, does that narrative even make sense? And so what we discussed was a couple things. One, hate, the real definition of hate is not that you disagree about something. The definition of hate is that you take joy in the hurt and pain of someone else. The definition of hate is not only you take joy in it, but you make it the goal of your life to inflict pain and hurt upon someone else. And so for you and I to sit here and go, well, because we believe the word of God, we think this lifestyle is wrong. I don't think that matches the definition of hate. Second, we looked at what does God say about Christians hating, period? Remove it from the context of homosexuality as a sin and just go, what does God say to his people about being hateful? And what we discovered is God has no place for hate in the heart of his disciples. In fact, what God calls you and I to do is to love and to love so strongly and so beautifully and so powerfully, so strangely, that you and I would actually love those we would call our enemies. And so even if we were to say that this disagreement about homosexuality would create someone as an enemy, which we don't believe is true, but even if we said it did, God's instruction to you would not be to hate those people. It would be to love them. This has always been what makes Christianity unbelievably different from everyone else. Read other faiths and you will often find that there is a delineation between who's in the family and who's out. And often there is justification for treating those outside of the faith with animosity, with violence, with aggression. 
But what has always made Christianity different is the very fact that God goes, look, not everyone's in the family. But for you, because you're mine, because I am love, your job is to love everybody. Even those we would call our enemies, you are to love them like I do. And the reason God gives us this justification and the reason you and I are motivated to do this is because it's already been done to us. For those of us that have become believers, what we know is that there was a moment in time in our own lives where we stood in opposition to God. We were his enemies. He had made us. He had given us everything. And we had the choice to follow him and instead of trying to live as our own gods. And in those moments when we stood as God's enemy, he did not strike us down, but instead sent his one and only son to die on a cross to pay for our sins so that we could be saved. And so you and I, serving a God who is love and being people who have been loved when we were God's enemies, we are now inspired, encouraged, and commanded by our God to go out into that world and even in those places where we disagree, even in those places where we do find enemies, to not bring hate and anger their way, but to bring love. That's what makes us different. Remember last week we talked about how God opened our eyes to the fact that if you think you're loving just because you love those who love you, everybody does that. The worst, the most vile people in the world still treat kindly those who treat them kindly. The most evil people in the world still tend to have a positive affection for their own children. So if Christians only show love to those who love them, it doesn't make us different. It doesn't highlight the beauty and the awesomeness of God. And so today what I want to talk about in relation to this topic is... The converse of hate, which is love. And talk about what does God mean when he says love? Because I'll be honest with you, and I don't think it's unintentional. I think a lot of this narrative around Christians being hateful of the homosexual community is not done in honesty. It is done by us redefining words and just twisting their definition slightly. And I think one of those words we've twisted is hate. I think the other is the one we'll talk about today, which is love. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we come across the best biblical definition of love that we can find. I think it's important as we look at 1 Corinthians 13 that you notice how long this definition is. And the reason I want you to pay attention to that is because it is my belief that there are some truths that are in many ways fully beyond the concept of words. You notice as we go through this passage how Paul will define love for us by pointing both to what it isn't and both to what it is. And what you end up realizing about this agape love that Paul is describing is that in all honesty, it is bigger than to be contained by words. The words can help us fence it in, the words can help us clarify what it's not. They can clarify how it acts. But can we fully encompass the power of this thing in human words? Not really. 
it's funny, I think as modern Americans, we struggle more with this concept because we have been raised in a society that is unbelievably humanistic. We've been raised in a society that teaches us we can learn and know and do all. Even if you just go through elementary, high school, right, kind of pay attention to how we teach things, we often take scientific theories, which have some evidence and some support, and we teach them like they're hard and fast facts. And with things like internet and Google, we no longer are comfortable with things we don't have answers to because we expect knowledge to just be at our fingertips. So it makes us very uneasy when we come across something that can't fully be encapsulated in words. But let's be real, many things we encounter in life are just that. This is why you like 60 different love songs, all having different words. Why? Because that one song that describes it in that one way, you go, yeah, that's kind of right. Yeah, I, I, can, I can see that. I felt that. And then that other song that plays right after describes it in a slightly different way. And you're like, you know what? It's also kind of like that. It's one of these beautiful things that can't fully be captured by our words. And so in this, Paul does his best to hone us in on what it is. But there's still the essence of it. It is these things and even more. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says this, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag. And it is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And so brothers and sisters, as we look at this, I love the importance that God puts on this topic of love. In the context of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing a group of people in Corinth who are arguing about what is the greatest spiritual talent you can have. Right? They're all bragging about how God uses them. Oh, well, me, I speak in tongues. Me, I'm a great evangelist. Me, I can dissect the word like no other. And Paul sees all of this arrogant bickering about who is doing the most for the kingdom. And he walks and he tells them, you're all idiots. You're all idiots because your talent doesn't matter. All those things, if you don't have love, Prophecy all you want. Accept the word all you want. Evangelize all you want. But if it's not on the foundation of God's love, it's worthless. It's absolutely worthless. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I can tell you as a high school, I did not fully understand this. As a high school, I was very passionate about evangelizing and sharing my faith with people, especially those who wanted to scientifically prove why God didn't exist. 
So I regularly get into these debates with folks about faith and why God made sense and why it was logical and how the science backed up the story of creation and why other faiths didn't make sense. But you know what I was missing most of the time? The tone of love. When I was arguing with these people about our greatness of our God, I wasn't doing so in love. My goal was to make them look like fools. My goal was to take their arguments that I felt were built on stupidity, to demolish them, to tear them, and to prove that anybody who thought like that was a fool. And to be honest with you, I do believe that. But I miss the fact that the whole reason I should have been doing that was not to say, I'm right, you're wrong, but to say, this knowledge is the key to God's love. And the reason I'm arguing is not to win, not so I can defeat you. The reason I argue you is because I so badly want you to see the truth and realize that over here is the greatest love you can ever imagine. That if you were willing to see the flaws in your argument, if you were willing to open your eyes and your heart and your soul to a God like this, you would encounter a love that would change your life. I argue you not to be great, but so that you can see the greatness of God. That was missing. And I started to realize that I would often intellectually win the fight. Nobody walked out and went, man, that Luke's a real loving God. I sure want to follow that God. He seems nice. Nobody was thinking. And as I say that, let me remind you of what we're called to do. In Matthew chapter 22, a verse that we talk about, I almost feel like every week, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He's really asked, in my terms, as some of this, what is Christianity? And what he says is this, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On all the law and the prophets depend these two things. Amen. He says, all scripture is about these two things. Love God with everything you have. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. That was the important thing I was missing back then, and I'll be honest with you, I think when it comes to the topic of homosexuality, it is something some Christians meant. Not all, but some. Is homosexuality a sin according to the Bible? Yes, absolutely. Does God tell us to be concerned about our brothers and sisters or our fellow man who live in continual, intentional, habitual sin? Yes. He tells us to be concerned by that. Because if you and I, not just homosexuality, but any sin, go, I will intentionally, habitually do this. I don't think it's wrong. I know what God's word says, and I don't care. If any of us continually do that, then it's, it's okay, it's right, for others to doubt that your relationship with the Father is in the right place. Right? We can't judge whether you're saved or not saved, but when someone continually, habitually, and intentionally 
picks a lifestyle that goes against the word of God and goes, I care not what God says about this. It's fair for others to look at you and go, kind of feels like maybe you and God's relationship is not in a great place. So it's fine for us to admit that homosexuality is wrong, but I'll be real with you. I think many Christians who do have also done some with disgust. Have also done some with hate. Have also done it to hide darker feelings that are in our hearts. When we talk to someone who lives in these lifestyles, what they should not feel from us is hate. They may find that we disagree about what they do is wrong or right. But what they should never think is that we hate them. What they should never think is that we don't want them near us. What they should never think is that we despise them. And I think many a Christian has used what God says about their lives being sinful, and accurately so, as a cover to show anger to show discrimination, to show what the world would call homophobia. And what I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, is there's a way for us to sit with love that both declares what they do is wrong, but also shows that, well, I think what you do is wrong. I love you. I care for you. And that's what we've got to find. We've got to be real enough in our hearts to know that when we talk about these things, when we discipline, when we bring the word to show darkness, we do so motivated not by arrogance and pride, not motivated by anything else, but motivated solely and utterly by love. By love. And if we find in our own hearts that it is not love that is motivating us, then we need to get right with our Lord and correct that. God's desire in our heart would be that each of us firmly stand by the word of truth saying, yes, this is wrong, but do I love you? Let me give you what I think is an example of why this is prevalent and why I'm even speaking to it. I know many Christians who, when it comes to the topic of homosexuality, have many passionate things to say. Very strict rules about how they would interact with the homosexual in their life and about what those relationships would look like. Yet those very same people have dear friends and close people in their lives who are intentionally living in premarital sexual lifestyles. Just of the heterosexual variety. They seem to know have no qualms about that. From the eyes of God, when we look at people who live in a homosexual lifestyle and we look at anybody else who lives in any other heterosexual sexual sin, there's no difference. The word of God equally looks upon those of us who are gay as those who go, I will have sex outside of marriage. This is the same thing to God. Yet I would say I don't think the church has treated those two things exactly the same. Often, one, we full force meet with the word of God, we meet with the strength, we meet with force, and the other, we kind of just go, let's, let's look away from that. Maybe they'll figure out they shouldn't be doing that. Why? The word of God doesn't treat them differently. The word of God doesn't address them in a different way. I think, brothers and sisters, when we see something like that, it reveals to us something 
not about God, but about us. But one, we are more motivated to address than the other. I know many Christians who would not watch a show that has a homosexual relationship at its core, and I, I personally agree with that. I would not do that. But I know many Christians who will watch the exact same type of shows whose whole goal is to see main characters sleep with other people. And they'll go, that's fine. That's good. How? How much of our entertainment regularly glorifies sin? And on that we go, well, that's okay. But this, no. If you're not coming to that distinction from what the Word says, where are you coming to that distinction from? Where's that outside source that's directing you in this? And I say this, brothers and sisters, because this is where God wants you and I to get real, not just about what his word says, but how has it impacted our lives and souls. Remember one of the most profound things that Jesus taught to was when he preached on the Sermon on the Mount, he was encouraging the people listening to him to think more deeply about the commandments of God. He said, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, then you have committed adultery. You've heard it said that you should not commit murder. But I tell you that if you look at your brother with hate, you have done that. His point was, is you have taken these laws and you've placed them on these hardened actions only. And you never thought about what God was trying to say about your heart. Of course God doesn't want you to murder, but he also doesn't want you to be a person who walks around all day wishing people were dying, wishing that tragic things would happen to your boss, wishing that you could just push people out of your life because he can't stand them. God wanted deeper change than just behavior modification. He has come into your heart to pull out the sin of darkness and to replace it with a brand new heart. Heart that loves truth, power. And that, brothers and sisters, is the truth and the balance I want us to find. I don't want us to be the people who act like what God's word says doesn't matter. That act like it doesn't clearly say within Scripture that homosexual lifestyles are wrong. I want us to stand by that truth, to not be ashamed of that truth, but also realize I can do that and be loving to everyone I encounter. Those who disagree, those who agree, those who even live in those lifestyles. I can show them love. I think one of the places that we struggle when we talk about this concept of love is that the world has greatly evolved what the definition of love is. It's why many of us are actually hardened to it. I know many young people, by the time they're in their early teens, late or early 20s, someone walking up to them and saying, I love you, means absolutely nothing to them. Because they've heard it a million times. And what they've realized is, none of those people love me. Right? Someone said, I loved you because they wanted to do something in the bedroom. Someone said, they loved me because they wanted me to do them a favor. Someone said, I loved you because of whatever. But they didn't love me. One of those words that we butcher. And so, what I want you to see is when we look at it from the perspective of God, it's important to break down how love looks. In fact, in the New Testament, 
there's four different words that we all see in English translated as love. And each of them is different. The first is eros, which refers to what we commonly use as romantic love. This positive affection for you, this, this sexual attraction, this feeling between someone that there's a romantic connection. Then you have storia, which storia refers to this love between a family. The example often given is how a mother loves her child. A deep affection. But a deep affection that comes from a bond. A real bond that can't be denied. A bond that exists. And then you have phileo, or phileo, as we often call it, which is brotherly love. Kindness that I have for friends. A positive affection for those that I encounter. I would argue, brothers and sisters, in our world, when we see love used, mostly it is those three. And what those three have in them is those three are about positive affections for people because of either position or action make me feel good. Right? This is worldly love. This is the kind of love that's like, because you do something for me, I do something for you. Because you make me feel good, then I will make you feel good. But the love that we often describe in the New Testament, the love described in 1 Corinthians 13, the love in Matthew 22, is none of those loves. It's this one called agape. And agape love pushes all of the love down. Agape love is the kind of all-consuming love that says, when I have agape for you, that lives you above all else. Agape love is not just built upon feelings, but it's built upon truth, and truth that shows itself in action. Agape love has the strength to it. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, I think this is what often is missing from the love in our culture. The reason so many of our young people have no affection for love is because they've never seen it translate into action. Oh, great, so you have positive feelings for me. That's wonderful. Will you sacrifice for me? No. Will you do anything meaningful for me? No. You have positive feelings, and if you get extra time, extra money, extra effort, or it's no inconvenience to you, then you'll do something for me. Great, thank you. Agape is the kind of love that says, I will sacrifice my life for you. Agape is the kind of love that says, I will go through difficult times. I will make myself uncomfortable. I will do what is hard. Not because it benefits me, but because it benefits you. I'll do it with joy. I want to do it. And this agape love brings to it a strength. Look at Romans chapter 12. We start to see with this love, that there is a morality and a strength to it. Romans 12, 9 says, Let the love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Notice what Paul's starting to say here. This love that you have is not just built on a feeling, but it's built on the truth of is it good or is it evil. Love distinguishes between these things. Look at 1 John 3, 18. Little children... Not let, us, let us not love in word or talk, but what? In deed and in truth. 
So this love isn't just built on what's good and evil, but it then shows itself not just in what I say, but how do I act? How do I behave? You know, one of the most beautiful examples of this is what we see with the Good Samaritan. Jesus uses that example to show this kind of active love. Right? The priest and the Levite pass by the Samaritan or by the Jew who is hurt. They may offer their prayers, but they just walk by. That love does not cause them to act. But the Samaritan sees him. He acts. He stops his journey. He stops his path. He stops his will. And he submits to what has happened before him. He takes up this stranger. He sacrifices for this stranger. He makes the needs of that stranger greater than his own. That love shows itself. Often in those cases where agape love is present, it's never a surprise for those people to tell you they love them. Have you ever had one of those moments in your life where you, 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 know, you work up the courage to tell someone you love them? And they're kind of like, yeah, I kind of knew. <coughs> it really wasn't surprising. To be honest, that's how good love should be. If you ever have someone tell you they love them, or you tell them you love them, and they're shocked by it, it's not a good thing. It typically means you have not acted towards that person in any way, shape, or form that's loving that would reveal to them you care about them. Typically, if someone is important enough to you that you would sacrifice your life for them, it's kind of showed itself. It's shown in how you spend your time and your money and the words that you say and the actions that you take. And it's shown in the way you look at them and it's shown in the way you behave around them so that when you finally go, I love you. You're kind of like, I know. I know. How? Because it's literally been written in everything you've said or done for the last few months. In fact, everybody knows you love me. It's the worst kept secret ever. In Proverbs 13, 2, it says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Do you see how the strength of love starts to show itself? Not only is it built on what is good and truthful and honest, and not only will it take action, but it will actually take action that could temporarily inflict pain upon those that love This is the kind of love that truly says, I will do what is for your best, even if that is discomforting. God, do we miss this love in our Honestly, I think us missing agape love is one of the biggest problems in our entire society. We so dislike discomfort now that we basically separated ourselves so that we only hang with people who are just like us. I can't talk to a Democrat if I'm a Republican because I disagree with you and your discomfort makes me angry and you're evil and I want you out of here. Why? Yeah, you may disagree on some pretty significant things, but you can't find any common bonds. You can't sit in a room with respect. You can't sit in a room and realize there might be a way to mutually benefit each other. You might realize that the best way to show people that maybe they are wrong or maybe you're wrong is to show some love, to 
show that you are a decent human being, to say that there are some positive values, and realize that in sharing those things, you might work around those other issues? No, what we've done is we've broken into our camps. Anything that makes us discomforting or makes us uncomfortable, get away. Get away, it's evil, it's wrong, get away from me. God says, says no, love is all about this Love is about constantly finding those things that need to be corrected and removing And what God would say to you is any of your friends who would watch you go the wrong way and not say something to you, they don't love you. In fact, they hate you. If someone in your life is running the wrong way and you don't find them, you cheer them on. You encourage them. How dare you to say you love them? You don't love them. You hate them. You see them on a path to destruction and you go, keep running, brother. That is not motivated by love. This is what he wants us to see. In Revelation 3.9, he goes, this is even true for our relationship with him. God says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Paul even talks about how as children of God, we should cherish when he disciplines us. Because it's evidence that we're his. I finally get this now as a parent. Right? This is why at Chuck E. Cheese I can watch 27,000 kids all doing the wrong thing, but only one of them is getting spanked. Because that one's mine. And when I see him do that, and I know he knows wrong, and he knows that was the wrong thing to do, and he went the wrong path, I love him, so I'm correcting him. The others, I don't love them, so they're not getting spanked. That's how that works. And you go, it's kind of weird that the one you love is the one you chose to pull out of the group. The one you love is the one you chose to yell at. The one you love is the one you chose to spank. But that's what happens. Because I have no commitment to those others. I have no dreams for those others. I have no deep desire in my heart to see those others become a person that is honored and cherished and lives a life that glorifies God. But for that one, I do. For that one, I committed to God that I would do that. So he, he gets called out. That love. This is the kind of love that God wants to see in his family. It's why even sometimes our own churches are comfortable. If you want to come to a church where you can do all the wrong things, in blatant view of everybody, and never be called on it, you're at the wrong place. There are many churches where that can happen. Where you are not known, you are not seen, and no one will ever call you on what you do. That's not what we believe the Bible instructs us to do. This church, part of the family, we call each other out on things. And not because we would like to, not because it's fun, but because we love each other. Because we realize that with each and every one of us being addicted to sin, there are moments in our lives where all of us do the wrong way. It's comforting to know that in those moments, I have people who actually love me, who will put themselves in that path and go, brother, no, you need to turn around. You veered off course. If you have your Bibles, spoke with me to John chapter 4.
In John chapter 4, we see a story where Jesus shows a love that is willing to go against the culture around him. We see a story where Jesus is willing to show a love that shows itself in him saying some things that would have been uncomfortable to hear. In John chapter 4, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and went away into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So as he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave this well to us, and who drank of it himself, and whose sons, and with his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them shall never thirst but the water that I will give them will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all this way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and have him come here. This woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said you have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and your people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, and an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The story goes on to tell us that this woman becomes a believer. Not only does she believe the words of what Jesus has said, but she begins to immediately evangelize all those around her. And she brings those other people to Jesus to hear the same truth that he has spoken. But what I want you to see about it is all those things that Jesus did to start this conversation required him to be create an uncomfortable situation. One, men did not normally address women. And a respectable Jew never dreamt of addressing 
a disrespectable Samaritan woman. The Jews had raised themselves with a pride and arrogance because they had pure Jewish blood. The Samaritans, they were half-breeds. Part Jewish and part who knows what else. Any good, respectable Jewish person knew you did not hang with them, you did not interact with them, you did not talk to them, you did not befriend them, you sure as heck didn't share a meal with them. Did Jesus care about any of those social warheads right here? No. Because what Jesus saw standing in front of him was someone who was lost. What Jesus saw was a woman whose heart was ready to hear the truth of the gospel. And what Jesus knew is that he could give her the wisdom, the knowledge, and the love that she desired. The question was, was he willing to create a discomforting situation to do that? Was he willing to break these cultural rules that have no basis in the word of God? Was he willing to say to her things that might have made her ashamed? have that conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely he was. You think back then any woman wanted to be called out for having five different husbands? You think anybody wanted to be called out for that the man that she currently lived with was not her husband? No. But Jesus knew through the truth that he was sharing that truth could break down the walls around her heart. And though that truth would first make her see sin, and first make her see darkness that was in her, it would ultimately open her up to the light that would push all that darkness out. And that's, brothers and sisters, why we do not call sin good. And that's why, brothers and sisters, no matter what the world around us chooses to call the sin that God has called out, we will still call it sin. Not because we think it makes us better. Not because it makes us more righteous in the eyes of God. We do it because doing it is the way that we show love. We do it because we believe those who have bought that lie have distanced themselves from God in such a way that it will be so hard for them to know His glory, His power, His grace. We share this truth with them, not to belittle them, to discriminate them, or to hate them. We do it because we believe when they see that truth, it opens up the doors for them to become the children of God. We do that because we love. So brothers and sisters, what I encourage you to work out in your own heart is what motivation really are playing for you. Do you want to know the word enough to stand by? To plant your feet in the soil of the word and hold true to it. Not just to read it, but to think about it, to meditate it, to make it part of you. And then have you looked at your own heart enough to know that you share these things from love? That when you call out a brother or a sister on their sin, 
whatever that sin may be. You do it because you truly love. You do it because you desire the absolute best for them. You do it because you want them to be in the unbelievable presence of God the Father. That's the responsibility each and every one of us have being children of God. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we ask for your strength and your compassion. Father, we know on topics like this, they are topics that are filled with such unbelievable passion. Because they're not just about actions, they're about people. They're about our friends, they're about our family, they're about sometimes our children, our brothers or sisters. And so what we pray for, Lord, is in these situations for you to show us the wisdom of your word. For you to give us the boldness to stand by you and what you've spoken but also, Lord, for you to put a heart in us that is filled with love. So that, Father, as we share your truth, as we stand by your truth, it will be unbelievably clear to all those that we speak with that we do it because we love you and because we love them. Father, allow us to be the light in the midst of darkness. Allow us to be your love in this world of hate.